Welcome to the 40th episode of Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, and I am joined today by producer Rashad Asir. Uh, Rashad, we are, we're going to do a bunch of Twitter uh, stuff. I think we're going to do it next week with someone who is uh, attuned with everything that's going on, and we can talk a little bit about uh, Twitter as a business and all the stuff Elon's doing. But the one thing I did want to uh, talk about was uh, the Rahul Ligma video, which uh, Rashad just watched uh, without knowing uh, without knowing the context of it. So, <laughs> Rashad, you give you want to give a little context of what you thought you were just watching there? Well, yeah, I mean, I I you sent me this video and you said, "Have you seen this?" I watched it with no context. Um, I had this like look of disdain and sadness, and then I come back to the video to see you like with this big smirk on your face. I was like, Logan, that's not funny. <laughs> so for people that don't know this, this was a week ago or yeah, uh, a week ago, Friday, uh, before right when, right when Elon closed Twitter, uh, Rahul uh, Ligma and uh, someone else by the name of Johnson, uh, last name Johnson, <laughs> camped out in front of Twitter's headquarters and claimed to be laid off engineers um, and they were not, uh, Rahul, Rahul, I know a little bit. Yeah. The, the, the boxes <laughs> I tried. Yeah. They had boxes, the cardboard boxes. I was a little surprised. Like, do people still do the cardboard box thing? <laughs> like what's in there? I don't know. The Michelle Obama. Well, Justin, if you can cue up the video here, at least the part, uh, at the, uh, at the end for, for people's context. Software engineer. How long have you been working here? Three years out of college. It's my first job out of college. Did they tell you why you were laid off? Did they give a reason? They said like no reason, but um, it's just like restructuring or like no specific reason. One person talked. So there was an HR person in the beginning and then a one person, you know, talking. Um, I couldn't see how many people were in the so yeah so that was that was run by uh a bunch of news organizations that didn't do any real fact checking on it and uh i was trying to get rahul who i know a little bit to uh to come on to the podcast, I tried to get him to come on and uh, and talk about what all uh, what all went on. Um, he, I did get a, a statement from Rahul Ligma himself. He said, "I appreciate the offer, but I decided to turn down all podcast and YouTube conversations. I think it adds more mystique to the plot." Uh, so. Yeah, I, I don't know how he thought of this or uh, what actually transpired, but pretty incredible. Sounds like he's got more more tricks up his sleeves. Yeah, exactly. A, a king troll getting people to uh, to fall for this. But uh, holding up the Michelle Obama book um, was uh, was all time. So, <laughs> yeah, I didn't totally get that reference when he was like, I, I was I was trying to empathize with the guy. This was back when I thought he had just got lost his job and was going to be, you know, completely laid off. And he was like, Michelle Obama would not have happened if Elon was running. I was like. 
<laughs> what? It's also when he says, I'm a big fan of clean energy, climate change, and even free speech too. Like he's a big fan of climate change and even free speech. So <laughs> really, uh, really just good stuff. I uh, No one was harmed in doing that uh, other than a few reporters that looked uh, looked a little ridiculous. But uh, maybe my my favorite of all the news is that that has come out of Twitter in the last uh, in the last. He hasn't week. actually gone through with layoffs. No, 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 no. Right, and we could talk about uh, talk about all those machinations in detail. But it seems like uh, it seems like they're kind of talking about fifty percent ish layoffs, which will be the whole thing's interesting, right? Like even I mean, it, it's it's it, people are going to lose their jobs, which is obviously sad, right, uh, or unfortunate here, but. Um, but it's definitely an interesting case study in one person uh, running a business and trying to change a culture and all of that stuff uh, at once. So, yeah, I, I imagine this will be fodder. Uh, we're, we're probably going to need to be experts in the going on on Twitter just uh, just to figure out, you know, everything that's happened on a daily basis. But we should give a quick plug as well. Rashad, you uh, you launched a podcast yourself this uh, last week, right? Yeah, I joined the, the tribe. Is there like a secret meeting I get to go to now where we no, talk about? No, no, no. People just assume that you have, everyone has podcasts these days. So people just assume it. Yeah. I mean, it's been fun. Um, I've gotten to talk to some cool people. Um, you know, I kind of just sprung that on you, by the way. And the look of fear, you're like, I don't want to talk about it. You're like, I, yeah, I, I do <laughs> how real I want to get. I mean, I, I will say the one thing, uh, it, it's a ton of work. Like, oh, you don't have to say <laughs> that just for my benefit. Just so many little things in the titles and the descriptions and like these last minute things, you know, I think we had a couple like, okay, we're going to go live on this day. And then there's like 10 new things that come up that you don't even think about. But um, yeah. Yeah. People think podcasting is all like sex, drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> and uh, it turns out like there's some hard work behind it too, right? Yeah. It's been fun though. Well, so so tell people what it is, where they can find it, all that. Yeah, yeah. So the show's called No Agenda. And the idea was um, to have people on and come basically center each episode around um, a skill, a creative skill in most cases, that the guest is passionate about, that they can teach. Um, so that it's not just me, you know, interviewing people, but rather giving them a platform to teach things that are interesting to me and and hopefully to listeners. Um, and so I've had some cool people on so far, uh, ranging from sort of like comedians to podcasters to uh, I had this guy named Chris Lauder on. He's a hospitality specialist. He's helped open up some of the best like Four Seasons in Seoul, Korea or uh, Nomad Hotels. He ran the bars there for like five years in New York City. And so he's got all this awesome experience running hotels. And he talks a little bit about um, restaurant building and things like that. And it's also people that have a passion and a skill for content creation, because that's kind of like my world. So that's really the the intersection or the types of guests I'm going after is people that are sort of at the intersection of, of business and like using content in a cool way to scale their business, to promote their business, things like that. And you're doing it similar to this. You're doing video and and uh, audio as well and all that. Yeah. So I guess Spotify is no longer in beta with their program. We were able to just launch with video, which is great. Um, I launched it uh, from my studio uh, slash apartment, uh, which <laughs> if you've seen any of the videos will we'll look familiar. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been fun. Good. 
All right. Well, uh, episode, I guess you'll have your first two episodes out by the time this publishes, right? Yeah. Check them out. Yeah. Subscribe and uh, like, follow all that, which I realize also here, uh, I don't uh, plug that enough. It seems to be something that's important, telling people to like and subscribe and share and review and all that. So I'll give a quick plug here. I, uh, yeah, I, I realize I've sort of stopped uh, asking for, for things, but that helps. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm told it helps in rankings and views and, and all that. So yeah, uh, people, I, I obviously do this for, uh, for all the, you know, the, the fame and celebrity and all that good stuff that comes out of this, but, uh, it would be nice if, if more people, uh, continue to find it, we continue to grow all that good stuff. So uh, that, there's my quick plug for it. So what you're going to hear next here is a uh, conversation I had with Peter Fenton from Benchmark. Uh, Peter is someone I have long looked up to uh, in the industry. I think at various points in time, he's ranked number one or two on the Midas list. Uh, one of the more impressive, thoughtful investors of uh, of this generation, I think, and uh, really fun conversation. I, I, I When I started this and started thinking about guests, he was... Uh, one of the first names I typed out just because I, I, uh, I so much looked up to him and he also doesn't do a lot of interviews really he does some, but, uh, not a ton. So, uh, it was fun to get to drive the conversation, take him in a bunch of different directions, talk through his career, talk through investing, um, all that stuff. So I, I really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, so hopefully everyone else will too. So that's what you'll hear now is a conversation I had with Peter Fenton from Benchmark. Peter, thanks for doing this. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited. We're in the, how new is this office? Yeah, it's about three years old. Oh, okay, you guys have been yeah. here a while. Last yeah. time I was here, although the Wi-Fi auto-connected, but the last time I was here, uh, you were in the old the old San Francisco market. At the Warfield. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Controversial Warfield. Yeah, it seems like a uh, upgrade. Well, uh, I think we're going to play the hits of a bunch of different things that... Um, uh, I've, I've learned about you and ask a bunch of questions about the market and, and some of this. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you're comfortable taking this in a lot of different directions. Yeah. It'd be fun. Cool. Um, well, the first one I think is an interesting you, so I meet people today and they ask like, they'll be 15 years old. Right. And they'll be like, I want to be a venture capitalist. And I'm like, where are they making these people that even know what DC <laughs> is at 15 years old? Maybe it's not 15, maybe it's 19. And they all seem to go to Wharton or Stanford, but you actually, were one of the people that maybe knew early on, I don't know if it was actually 15, but you yeah. knew what VC was. It took me to 24 before I actually knew what it was as an industry, but you grew up in the Bay area and your dad ultimately became a venture capitalist, right? Yeah. So what was your exposure growing up to VCs and why did you want to be one? Yeah, it's, um, it's a story that I've reflected on because you, at some point in a, if you're lucky, I think in a life you you find something that has a purpose that is insatiable. It's not um, extrinsic. It's not you know if I achieve this, if only then I'm going to have that. And that happened to me in my early twenties for venture. But it, it, the seeds were planted through my my teenage years, which is interesting and does make me um, you know a bit uh, self conscious, I guess, about the luck. Of course, everything is luck. There's no, there's good and bad luck, but it was luck to have been in this soup of the Silicon Valley as a, as a kid, you know, Nolan Bushnell came to my, uh, seventh grade public school class and said, we have a problem of, um, 
uh, too many ball bearings and, and for something, it was a long story about how creativity and entrepreneurship and how that led to these insights. And I thought, well, what he's doing is just fun. And it felt at the time, Silicon Valley, I think was still, and I hope it still is avowedly anti-authoritarian. And, you know, we had the countercultural elements still percolating in the seventies and, um, this idea that these companies were coming up to take down the gray lumbering giants of places like IBM that was in the blood. And, and, you know, my dad had been an entrepreneur. He'd come out and, you know, um, founded a company. Uh, I don't know that it was particularly successful, but it was that sense of like, we're not going to go join the establishment. We're going to blow it up and, and, um, have do it, do it our own way. And, you know, he did talk about venture capitalists. My first memories of venture capitalists were when I was in my teenage years, and he, he mostly loathed them. Uh, they represented for him a bit of authority, right? Like there was a board of directors, and they would come up, to the, and they used to wear suits back then, and they would drive European sports cars. And, and you know, he, and back then, an entrepreneur, you, you know, you bought used cars, you'd made much less salary than you would if you'd worked at a big company. And um, probably some part of my inner psyche was reacting to, uh, I haven't done enough therapy to reveal this. The thing that was terrorizing my dad was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Just always. Right. <laughs> so, so that, that was in the water that was in my, in my psyche. And, um, you know, when I was, uh, when I went to undergrad, he became a venture capitalist. It's funny. He started at age 50 and I just turned 50. Hmm. So, it, um, and I had a theory for a while that that's about the age where you're, you know, you should be thinking about what's next, um, 50 and, but, but he, uh, if you're in venture, but that's another discussion. And, and so in the process of going into venture, he, he started to bring home the business plans. And back then there were, there were videotapes. <laughs> and so I would watch the videotapes of like the flying car or, you know, it's not about chicken. It's about rabbits and rabbit farms. And there was some crazy shit back in yeah, the yeah. day, you know, like people were, is pitching. this like mid nineties or when is yeah, this? Is, this is uh early nineties. Yeah. So pre-internet bubble, like after the Apple and uh, whatever, Dell and all those successes. Exactly. It was um, pre-internet um, and biotech had been on the scene. So Genentech had gone public and I was quite attracted to that, yep. th that idea. And, and I would see him on the weekends, just spend most of the weekend reading business plans. And this idea that you could study something from a distance and from a point of view it ingrained in me the discipline of the work, which is that we really have to, to do work to understand the nature of these businesses. But then also, um, you know, there were success stories, like his firm had invested in Starbucks and you take a coffee shop idea and then scale it and, and what's possible and all those, uh, I mean, the, the lyric nature of success in, in, in entrepreneurship captivated me. Um, and so, you know, I went to undergrad and studied uh philosophy which made me suitably unemployable for anything yeah. except for getting more philosophy degrees um you know and and i think it's that, so that sort of later time in college when i felt in the internet of course hit the scene this is 94 i graduated and you know it was a question of not you know uh, if i was going to participate in the entrepreneurial world but how would i best orient my psyche to that and and venture i mean the cynical view is that I was suitably ill-equipped to do anything, but, you know, do this, this job where you sit around and, and, you know, think, um, and delete emails. Um, the positive view is that, um, it just, it just spoke to me that the idea you could work with these entrepreneurs and, and be a part of their success, 
but not in the foreground, you know, not, not the ego that's, you know, claiming anything. And I was exposed that time to people like John Doerr, who might have been in the foreground, but just this notion of, okay, you could work with a constellation of, of extraordinary people and companies. And I was totally irrational about it, but I thought to myself, no matter what it takes, and I was, I mean, so much so that I was embarrassed to mention it. So um, even my dad, I didn't tell him I wanted to be a venture capital because God, you know, this last thing you want to do is what your dad did. And, and um, you know, so it was a secret. And, you know, I, I spent a couple of years at Bain and then went to a startup company because I felt there's no way to actually do this job without actually being in the shoes of, of an entrepreneur, seeing the problems of a 1.0 product. And I went to a company that's sort of forgettable, but it was to, to launch their first product where you had to get customers to pay for it. And, and that experience informed me even more that I wanted to be a venture capitalist. <laughs> Not that it was hard. It was really brutally hard. But um, to do that as many times as one can in a career. And, and, you know, if you do it in one company, okay, you can launch product two and product three, but imagine having a dozen companies you're working with that are doing that. So, uh, and then I, I, I found my way into, um, a summer internship at, at Sutter Hill who had invested in that startup and the rest is, you know, my, that's my history. So, so Sutter Hill to Excel right after that? Yeah, I was, uh, Sutter Hill during the first year of business school, um, or the summer before business school. And then I went to Excel the second year. And stayed there for seven years. And so that was straight through. So Excel, you started in 99? In 90, October 99. And so yeah. that was straight through the bubble. Uh, oh, yeah. And I mean, there were obviously you had Jim Breyer and Jim Getz and Facebook and all that stuff kind of happened while you were there. Yeah. What, uh, what was the experience coming on? And uh, you've told the story of uh, a performance review that you got from Breyer and, and Getz, I think maybe your first performance review. So so obviously a pretty interesting time to join any firm, right? Specifically that firm as the internet bubble is kind of blowing up. So what was that experience like? You know, I think the gift of that experience, I have so much gratitude because I was, I was lucky to get the job. I, I didn't have much background it's not like I worked at Netscape, you know, I was at a company called Virage and, and, but I knew Teresa who worked with me at Bain and she advocated for me and I have eternal gratitude for, you, know, you go back to your career and there's these people that take a leap of faith on you. And at the time you think they don't really know me because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. if they did, they wouldn't be doing this. And at least I thought that way. And, um, and you have a measure of, okay, I want to, I want to not, not prove them wrong. And so, I had a lot of insecurity, um, arguably everyone does, but it was, uh, you know, mostly a version of like, let's try and not get fired because I so badly want this job. And, you know, I worked a hundred hours a week, did everything I could, took too many meetings. And, uh, yeah, I mean the shaping environment of Excel and, and from 99 to, to 2006 when I left was, um, defined in, in, in my memory as uh, mentorship in venture, which is odd because it isn't really, people say it's an apprenticeship business, but how does that play out? And if you, cause if you go in with the mindset that I'm being apprenticed, I'm the young grasshopper, I think you learn bad habits because you learn how to be a mini me. And Excel was, I think, good in saying everyone here is sort of, they treat, they didn't treat me like a mini this or mini that. They said, okay, Jim, the first meeting I had with him in October of 99, I was still in business school. He says, if you do if you do two or three investments when you're in school before you graduate in June, that's about the pace we would expect. You don't have to be at full throttle. <laughs> I left thinking, I'm going to probably be fired before December, you know, because how do I invest? I'm in school. 
but it was um, Excel had a lot of uh, you know investment acumen in the sense that the firm was very attenuated to having a thesis. And um, they were they like to quote Louis Pasteur, the chance prefers a prepared mind. And and I got that discipline. I got the sense of okay, so much of what we do in the venture business feels random. And you know it is. You spend um, so much time, and then all of a sudden lightning strikes, and you think, oh my god, I just met a company that I haven't seen something this good in two years, and it may be two more years before it happens again. So what do you do in that space that exists in between? And and the idea of like learning the business through success and I, you know my biggest mentor in those years was two people it's interesting i think about it now arthur patterson who um took founder of excel the right? founder of excel and we served on a board together and um i have so many memories i went to a core metrics we we're on the core metrics board together and the ceo brett hurt who's fantastic he presents his fiscal plan this is in like 2001 um and it was to consume you know, today it seems small, but like 20 million of capital. And, and Arthur <laughs> looks at him and, and, and Brett says, okay, is this approved? And Arthur's like, no, this is, a, this, this, is a, this plan's ridiculous. <laughs> and then he got up and he left. And I thought, well, what happens next? And, you know, I, I learned that, you know, you have a, it's not a mechanical business. It's not like there's some formal approval. Arthur was expressing something that, that Brett would have to internalize and then we'd work on it. And I, I, re, I give that a, a story mostly because, you know, there's a, um, one of the roles as a director and Arthur taught me this is truth and, and truth seeking isn't always, um, socially, in fact, it's almost never socially, um, rewarded because you don't make someone feel good if there's a truth that they don't want to see. And, and, and Arthur, you know, kept bringing me back to like, you know, the relational side of the business, while important, isn't what expresses greatness. And what expresses greatness is this tilting towards truth seeking. Now you can do it in a more humanized way. And, and so Arthur taught me that. The other person who taught me, uh, I think of him as a mentor, interestingly, although he would never, um, he would deny it, uh, probably, <laughs> uh, is Dave Strom. And, and Dave and I, uh, that was the first board I served on, which was Wiley Technologies. And Dave was, um, uh, showed to me the craft when you really are deep and strategic and, and think substantively about the business and, and do work that's not just sound bites at a board meeting. But Dave would have in any board two or three comments that would have tip of the iceberg, you know, kind of a phenomena it, where you go deeper. And he was seeing that Wiley was totally dependent at the time on IBM for distribution, IBM and BEA. And he could visualize the sockets that were needed to protect that distribution that they had to block. And the actions and the product strategy that would reinforce that business model and the telemetry that someone could see, I'm like, this is this to me was a form of um, not just like, you know, uh, uh, um, a science of sort of an, an art of uh, how to make that point, but the science of the underlying structure of the software industry and i would come out of those board meetings and i would take copious notes and i would say okay how, how do i get better next time i go to a board meeting what could i have done better and so that those years those first you know call it five to seven years i was um you know i was sort of accepting the fact that i was lucky to have a job because it was the post bubble i didn't really think i deserved it and i was pretty sure i remember turning to Teresa and, and we went to the world series in 2002 and i had made six investments then this is in October 2002. And I said, 
I, I just, I'm really ashamed that I think I'm going to have lost every investment. And, you know, because there was really no positive feedback at that time. And I just want to let you know, I'll always be grateful. It's, um, and I hope you don't hate me. And she's like, ah, you know, we all, we all kind of feel that way right now. I mean, miraculously, none of them died. Um, I mean, not to say they're great investments, but that's not the game is not to have none of them die. But it, it was, uh, it hardened me in a way. I think many of us who were around during that first bubble um, burst carry um, forms of trauma where we're particularly triggered now because those those patterns, we feel in our gut what it you know takes to renegotiate debt. And you know, having done that at core metrics, um, or what it means not just to do a layoff, but to um, have the bottom fall out on you. And just assume like all the things that if you do these things, then things are going to be great. Well, no, no, you can do all the things that you thought you're going to do and things going to be, or could be awful. And, and so you go through that period of time. The trick with, with these traumas is to, um, is to manifest the fears, address them, confront them and not have them, you know, preying on you constantly as you're, you're skittish about risk, but you, when you find a way through, cause it turned out it was okay for mo- for the great companies, it was an opportunity and, um, Great entrepreneurs, I think, you know, uh, th- tend to thrive in these more stressed environments. So that was the 2000, 2007 era. The mentorship thing's interesting because I, I experienced something similar that the people that I viewed as mentors were all much older, had way more gravitas when yeah. they said people, when they spoke, people listened to them, right? It was mm-hmm. just like they, they had this wealth of experience to draw on. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't do that as a... 30 something, you know, like I, I the heft of my words didn't carry a boardroom, right? Yeah. It, but you end up stealing little aspects from people or learning yeah. like that from people. And uh, uh, he'll be embarrassed that I give him credit for this, but um, your partner, Eric, I, uh, yeah. we had Amplitude together and like seeing how he works, you internalize little bits of that, right? And how, yeah. he, how he operates with entrepreneurs. And uh, there's been a handful of those people that like, you just kind of steal little stylistic things are uh, yeah. that they do and then make it true to yourself. So it sounds like getting yeah. all that board exposure from great people was, uh, was super helpful for, um, for all that for you. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing, which particularly people coming into the business that, um, you know, I had this insecurity of why would anyone want to work with me? And Lou Cerny was the first person who took a leap of faith on me. Um, I was, um, you then, you know, in question of like, okay, if he's willing to work with me, he must have really low standards. <laughs> the Rodney Dangerfield, I don't want to be a part of a club that wants right. me as a member. Um, but, but you know, I, I, what I discovered is that something we learn over and over again, you know, experience is a weak proxy for character. It's, it's a weak proxy for um, future manifestations and it's a weak proxy for the kind of, I would say, non-quantifiable commitment that comes with a great partnership and trust. And so, you know, I was going up against some great venture capitalists and some of these investments and someone gave me the advice, this is on JBoss and I was clearly, I was actually competing, I didn't know at the time, I was competing with Benchmark. And you know, I, so I wrote a long letter to the entrepreneur about how all the ways I could help. And, and, and a uh, dear friend of mine at the time pulled me aside and he said, no one's going to pick you because you're better at anything. They're going to pick you for, for who you are as a human being. And that will allow them to take a leap of faith with you. So 
the feedback was really simple, which like, just go sit down with the entrepreneur and say, you're going to, which is the truth. You're going to make a career bet. This is in 2003 on an open source software company without a business model. And that you're making that career bet. You have no choice, but for this to be something that occupies the totality of my ambition for his success. Cause that's how I'm going to achieve what I want in my life. And, um, what I found in any situation is that if you tap into what's deeply your expression of, you know, your connection and all that, and it's truthful, by the way, if it's not, then you probably should move on that, that a great entrepreneur is going to respond to that level of depth and, and experience ends up becoming this, again, weak proxy. We all hire people. There's so many times in companies where it's like perfect background, got them into the company. And then, you know, three months later, you have that pit in your stomach of like, something's off here. And, well, because it was it was right on paper, but not right in reality. And there's so many unknowns. And you project, you tell yourself stories around. Okay, this is this is the right partner because they have that background. And um, you know, it's it's far more subtle. It's sort of like friendship that way. Like you don't no one picks their friends in that sort of deliberate, explicit way. It's it's felt, and it and it and sort of in spite of all the reasons they shouldn't be your friend, they're your friends. And um, that's how it should work, I think, when we partner with entrepreneurs. So, so competing with Benchmark at JBoss, and you also, I think, knew the industry well enough to know sort of the ethos of Benchmark as well. And yeah. it appealed to you even before, like, they wouldn't return your emails or something, or uh, Bruce Dunleavy wouldn't, uh, wouldn't call <laughs> you back. And then uh, ultimately, they, they started recruiting you? Yeah, there was just a seven-year hiatus there. Um, you know, I knew I wanted to be in venture at, at age 24, 25. I got into the business at, at, at um, well, I mean, explicitly with Excel at 26. Um, and at that time, I had this false dream that Benchmark would break the model and hire a principal and just give me a chance. I'll get in there, I'll get in front of Bruce, I'll make the case. And, and Bruce blew me off a few times. I did sit down with Bruce, who was at like, you know, 7 p.m. He's just like, I'd rather... I'd rather be with my daughters right now, respectfully, <laughs> but I'm doing this as a favor. And, um, you know, culture is not just the things you write down. It's, it's the, um, things that aren't said and the feeling of the benchmark culture at the time particularly resonated with me, anti-authoritarian. There was no hierarchy and I abhor authority and hierarchy. And I love entrepreneurs. I want to blow it up. Doesn't mean you don't have to have hierarchy in companies. You have to allocate resources. I get that. And there's governance. And, and this idea at the time, because people forget that Benchmark was viewed as a renegade firm in, in 1999 of like these the young punks. And people would say it's like Lord of the Flies. Oh, there's an interesting story now. Lord of the Flies doesn't actually, it's all fantasy. Like, you know, you put you know, kids on an island, they end up being really, there's an example out of Tonga where they did quite well. Um, and... And, 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 and Bruce was sort of like, yeah, good luck. Um, and I th thought to myself, well, that's, that's the kind of firm that I would want to be part of and help found. But this isn't for me. And so, you know, many times in your life, you sublimate, you know, what you really want and you, and you then figure out what you actually practically can do. Um, and I didn't dislike Excel. You know, I really, you know, it was a weird thing because people thought, well, he left because of compensation. I took a pretty big pay cut when I came over to Benchmark. People don't know that. <laughs> and it's not just because it was a Facebook fund. So it was a huge pay cut. <laughs> but At the time, it seemed like a pay cut. And then, at the time, it seemed like a pay cut. And, and then in hindsight, it was probably a very big pay yeah, cut. Yeah, 5,000x later. Yeah, and that's okay because there's... Um, 
I don't know. It, some people say this is a manifestation of, of, uh, um, of privilege, and I'm sensitive to that, which is that I didn't look at my employment agreement at Excel, and I didn't look at it at Benchmark. I, I just thought, if I have the platform to do this work, it all figures itself out. And, you know, when Kevin called me, I was at Excel, and I was, I was really admired my partners. I, I had a lot of um, hope for where Excel could go. I was still heartbroken that Jim Getz left. And I think we all were because he was uh, I mean, just a decent human being. And we all felt like... What year like, did Jim leave? He left a year and a half before I left. Okay, so, so, so middle of 2004 or something. Yeah. And you left in 2006. Yeah. And um, it was hard. You know, J Jim had gone through a difficult period of the reset in the in the in the communications or networking world right so it was just it was it was just a tough environment yeah. and um worked out for him. it worked out for him uh you know and i wasn't i wasn't itching to leave i did think to myself that you know if i'm lucky enough to earn the ability to start my own fund i probably would start a firm with matt kohler john Lilly, and reed hoffman and they didn't know this and this i say they'll laugh when i say that right but that was like my dream because i really love those people as human beings and thought you know if you could work with people like that it's not to say that i, I mean I, I had a ton of admiration for kevin efforts who i worked with and my partners at excel so yeah when they called kevin called me and, and my first response was he's like hey you know we're looking to add people to the firm and and i just froze and i thought uh-oh i wasn't ready for that and I said, I, I can't say yes to having this conversation unless I'm prepared to go through with it. And that's really hard because it makes me, I have to reconcile my relationships at Excel and they mean the world to me. So I, I, can't, I can't engage until I'm able to really imagine if I can, I can transform Excel into a place that I would want to be at for 20 years. Because this is the question I'm being asked, which is, do I want to do something? I'm gonna, you did it once. You yeah. did it once. You don't do it three times. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one branch on the tree, which is to work to have Excel really connect with who I was as a human being and being anti-hierarchical. The Excel model did have hierarchy <laughs> and, and it's not wrong. It's just, it's different. And, and then the other version was like, do I want to not pursue this dream of founding a firm? And, um, you know, I, I thought about it and you rationalize whatever you do. So, right. I mean, you, you tell yourself stories and, and so... I told Kevin I needed about a week to think about it. I called him back maybe 48 hours later. Yeah. Rings uh, true. I think uh, I don't want to draw on, on my experiences too much here, but I, I, uh, I get that decision. And so, but once you walk through that door, right, and yeah. I had it happen with Redpoint, uh, you, you have this experience uh, that, that you built your career around yeah. to date. And then you walk in to Benchmark and... There's not the 9 a.m. partner meeting that people are like ticking through and trying to figure out how much to talk versus how yeah. little to talk and all the memo presentations and all that stuff that I've, you know, I'm familiar with. But instead, people are kind of, for lack of a better term, um, just enjoying each other's company or fucking around in the first uh, partner meeting, right? They're looking at videos and talking about the weekend and ultimately getting to companies along the way, kind of an unstructured, yeah. was that an interesting uh, kind of out-of-body experience going from this like more structured world to this yeah. very unstructured kind of mindset? Yeah, I was, gonna, I was gonna reflect on something which is, it's not lost on me. People always say like, well, you, when you fire somebody, you always, no one ever says I fired that person too soon. 
because they look back and they think, oh, there's, I mean, obviously I should have done that six months ago. And I'm sensitive again to this being a, a rationalization because you don't really have the AB test. Yeah. So, but oftentimes when people are switching jobs and we spend a lot of time on our job recruiting, one of the things I try and have a sense for is, is, is the nature of that human being well-suited to the culture that they're going to? Will they, will they flourish in a way that they were not able to flourish? And you don't see that typically in an environment because we get into a company, maybe Gen Xers do this more than, than, <laughs> than a more um, conscious generation. But you, know, you just say, okay, I got to do my job. And, and I, who am I to, okay, at the margin, I'll challenge the culture and all that. But I, like, let me first earn the right to do that. And so what I didn't know in hindsight, by the way, it's funny because Benchmark said, we, you, you were the one taking the risk, not us. Because if you didn't work out, we would have fired you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you were kind of, you'd made yourself who you were at Excel. You were, it was done. Oh, totally. And, they hire you for everything you've done to date. Then you walk through the door and it's like, great. And it's like, yeah, new portfolio, yeah. new relationships and good luck. And, but you don't think about that. I had this instinct that, that the cultural piece, which is the anti-hierarchical fluidity, the sense of... Um, the equality as a ethos was like really reflected who I spoke to me. Um, and and I, I think so. I came to the firm, but I was terrified in the sense that do I know? Like, and you don't know. It's like so many of these consumer products get launched. You, you don't know until you actually run the experiment. And so I went in and I'm thinking, okay, if it sucks, that's fine. You know, I'll just if I continue to be um, passionate about working with great entrepreneurs and earning their trust and respect, then, then this won't matter. And I had rationalized a lot of that in my mind about, about the nature of what does a partnership do versus the um, you know, individual. But, but I went in and I, I, I was sort of, uh, I couldn't believe it. Like people are just having a fluid, natural, honest conversation. Now it was around stupid things, interesting things, but, but it was, it was, um, that uh, you could literally breathe and from, from the difference of what, and I'm not saying the other models are wrong, where there's a felt insecurity in the conversation of I am a level below, I'm working my way up, I'm going to earn the, or, or I'm more senior and I have to justify my existence, um, which is gone. And, and, and you could have taken the same human beings that I was working with and put them into that structure. And I think the same thing would have happened. So then I had a sense for how a system can can activate internal states as much as internal states can sort of construct a system and so i didn't know it until i was in it and then and after that first monday i was like that was probably just a show like you know yeah. like next monday it's going to be oh here we go yeah <clears throat> the crm is going to come out and uh, crms and that's then then we have to do first we talk about new business then we talk about you follow know, on financings it. and yeah yeah and no it wasn't that way and and it was far from perfect. So every system has its trade-off. And so, um, you know, it became clear to me at the time, we had our European efforts, we had our Israeli efforts, we had other, um, we, were, we were not honoring, I think, in the deepest sense, equality of partnership, because I think there were different versions of um, uh, hunger, different versions of ambition, of Trust, uh, probably across offices. Yeah, but but even inside of the, the, the of the Menlo Park office, um, trust was high. It was more people were in different stations in life. Yeah, and and I think it it, it what what the the seed that was planted for me in those early years at Benchmark was the potentiality is there for the system to be much better. And but I think we have to curate and edit it. And 
and I say this now, not because I'm on some woke mission, but you know, we were when I joined, I was the I think the seventh white male partner. And you know, you look at these things and say, okay, well, what, what, um, it, we have to destroy this, creatively destroy it, because that's what entrepreneurial mindset. And you, you just is okay. This is there are no sacred cows, and um, you know, it it, it uh, it's evolved towards what I would say is the essential core of what defined the original benchmark, which is a small group of people, high fluidity in terms of um, you know transference of information of trust which is sort of the glue and and, and mutual admiration um all aligned towards this purpose of like working with extraordinary entrepreneurs and you know that brings us the totality of joy in our life we're also parents we also have other identities and roles but this firm you know so destroys the notion of 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 you're better than anybody else because the minute you start to think that in a partnership dynamic it, it levels you it's fantastic what about just uh i mean now there's actually a book about venture capital uh power law that sebastian malloy or whatever did and piecing together all these things was something of an academic exercise i enjoyed of trying to learn the history of uh of how venture capital came to be but one of the things there's a excel chapter in there and it talks about the prepared mind ethos, the Louis Pasteur's quote. And uh, I've heard you say that, I don't know who it was when you walked in said, don't bring any of that prepared mind bullshit here or something. (laughs) I don't know who to attribute that quote to, but uh, a little bit of stylistic rewiring, not just like the structure in the meetings and the trust and all that, but there was definitely, it sounds like there was definitely a, uh, hey, we can, we can, and for people that don't know, like the prepared mind is, hey, we're going to go really deep into this, these domains, and we're going to figure out all the different companies in these different sectors. And when Facebook comes across the plate or whatever it is, we will have studied every single social network and know what to look for in that versus looking for when lightning strikes, right? Or when there's something special there. Did that, did you always gravitate a little bit more to the uh, lightning striking? element of it or was that something you had to learn from your partners uh to look for rather than hey i'm gonna go do a thesis deep dive diligence thing um yeah it's funny it's one of those questions that sometimes it's better to ask others about your internal um you know uh perspectives because you get when it's your perspective it's the water you're swimming in so you don't really know um eric said something to me the other week that really stuck with me and he said if you're investing in a company because of its business model i'm not so sure i should trust your instincts if you're investing because of the people i think we should invest and there's other partners where he would flip that you know where it's if it's investing because of the people then probably not that person that partner so in a firm dynamic what you find is there's different um you have different unique ideally um perspectives and in abilities to see things that are very clear and true to you that aren't obvious to others. Um, I'm not drawn to crystal ball work. You know, I get excited about vision. And when people come to me and say, okay, here's the way this goes, you get, oh yeah, you can see it as radical potential. And, and I'm, I'm, um, I respond to it, but I'm also suspicious when, when it becomes this sort of promotional thing. And, And I think what I actually, I think I share this into a degree with someone like Paul Graham, although I wouldn't compare myself to him when he's doing 42 Y Combinator interviews in one day, 
he's looking for this aspect of authenticity. And, and this is a big word that got overused in the 60s as some sort of, you know, ether. But the authentic is, to me, what you'd find in a great poem. And even though a great poem may take structural similarities to other great poems, in fact, it does, um, it's a unique contribution to reality. And, and you see the world differently after having read a good poem. It's this, the, the, the Proust comment about it changes your eyes. And so I think when I think about our role, everyone's different. If I see an entrepreneur that does that to me, and it does seem like a great poem, and it blows you away, that can happen in like three minutes, it could happen in an hour. But I don't look for great poems by saying, poems should be written about the twilight you know, with the ocean and have symbolic reference to the fact that we're conscious beings. And so we can't imagine the world without consciousness. No, like you read the poem and think that's a great fucking poem. And I, so I come back to what a, uh, my own sort of investment style probably evolved from a, a truth that I would encourage everyone who listens to this to follow, which is there are parts of what um, activate you uniquely where you completely lose your sense of self. Where, where you fall in and you um, aren't trying to do something for making money or winning a deal or all that, you're just swept off your feet. And we're all different. And when I get swept off my feet, it's that sensation of a, a, with, a with a poet of a business. And yeah, it's, it tends to be stitched into business models. And if there's a network effect, all, all the better. Um, but, I'm, but I'm principally relating to a human being. And, and that's what compels me and and that's what motivates me and i can't do that with slide decks i can't do that with abstractions as much as i can do it in the real life you know you know um and then how do you modulate that uh is an interesting question so so when i look at my partners they help modulate that instinct of mine with okay you have to do some due diligence or i, I, I don't really like to <laughs> but it helps uh, sarah's especially effective ex bessemer saying okay well you know we, <laughs> it's great you feel this way um let's go validate it Let's 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 check our assumptions here. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, she does it in such a delightful way. Uh, I don't have this gift, but when she's checking the assumptions, invariably the entrepreneur feels better about themselves and their business because she's asked the questions. And um, and you're I, going in eyes wide open to the yeah, opportunity. The yeah, exactly. You, and 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 you have um, the beginnings of what happens in terms of a great partnership, which is that we should be elevating consciousness for the entrepreneurs we work with around the stuff that really matters. And we shouldn't be elevating it for the stuff that doesn't matter. And that's one of the arts of venture where you get, I think you get better at that. Um, but I want to contrast that to the prepared mind approach, which has a role to play. It, you know, the prepared mind, in a sense, is reacting to a different aspect of where opportunities come from. Preconditions. You know, if, if you look at um, uh, the great things that have happened in venture, there's a set of preconditions, a little bit like adaptation. Like people don't just start with a wing. You know, it wasn't like all of a sudden insects could fly. There were preconditions. There were little stubs that came off of, uh, you know, um, amphibians or fish. You know, or of course, we all came from fish. And But if they didn't have a little stub, it wouldn't then compound towards a wing. So there's these preconditions. And so having a mobile phone penetration at 20% with GPS is a precondition for Uber, for Instagram. Um, I think today the blockchain is a precondition for a set of things that will blow us away. So the prepared mind as a... Let's be vulnerable to areas where there's no incumbent because there's high disruption force. Um, to me is an interesting 
depending on the fissile material of the, of, of the, the, the mine's pre- preparation, <laughs> you know, if, I'm, if I prepared my work and I remember trying to do this on storage, right? You know, storage is a big industry and lots of problems. And I did my prepared my work and I met these amaz- amazing people, John Carlsgrove, who would then go on to found Pure Storage um, when he was still at Veritas. And I thought, okay, this is one way to do it. Um, and, and credit to Mike Spicer who went and like, didn't just meet him. He, he worked with him at Veritas, but then had the instinct to sort of see the flash storage opportunity and nucleate that and all that. Um, it's deeply rewarding. And I, I mean, I've done that in different forms. I've worked with founding entrepreneurs like Rob Bearden at, at what became cloud era. And, um, but there is something about lightning strikes. Th- this is a fact which we all sort of try to suppress in for sure consumer, the big winners took off before they had venture money. And that really weighed on me. And it's like, okay, well, you know, Am- we didn't- And the Amazon, right? Uh, Apple, Microsoft. Google. Google. <laughs> Facebook. Facebook. I mean, I'd like to say we, we, um, we, we saw it before it was obvious. It was profoundly obvious in the Series A investment in 2005, in March of 2005. There were questions about, about some aspects of it, but you had- um, you, you couldn't have imagined stronger cohorts. It was just, you know, jaw dropping. And so if that's consumer, it's really challenging to crystal ball your way into. I think social needs something that does something like, no, you're going to want to meet an entrepreneur that, that, that provides poetry and, and, and then hope that that, that moves you. And, um, you know, but, but in, in other segments of venture, I think for sure in, 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 in life sciences, and you have to have more of a crystal ball. What so so it's interesting because you bring up I mean you were in the pitch the Series A for uh, for Facebook right at Excel and then mm-hmm. obviously uh, you know Evan Spiegel at Snapchat and Travis and yep. Lou with New Relic and then um, Jake Kreps at Confluent like all these different types of businesses yeah. do you think about like the characteristics what is the unifying characteristic that you've seen founders successful founders across b2b and consumer have and then it sounds like maybe there's some differences that mark can fall asleep uh, or maybe barely stay awake in the facebook series a pitch meeting and you, you give them a little bit more latitude versus you know travis at the at uber in, in in consumer versus b2b like what are the differences between the two well i think there's a common feeling of rapture. And I don't know what the full preconditions are of creating that feeling or state, but in a firm where you have, um, particularly our model, where you have five partners that are literally in rapture and it's a divine experience. I don't want to glorify it past it's sort of, you know, okay, it's a startup and you're putting money in and it's a pitch, but you get the sense in these common threads of you're not looking at your device, you're at the edge of your seat. And, and what evokes that is an interesting question. And, and I think one of the aspects that evokes that is um, seeing a reality that when it's explained to you and, and expressed is gripping. It feels like a secret in a sense, like others haven't seen it. And it's it's just at the beginning of being manifest. Um, I would say another dimension, this is this is more elusive than you would think, is a sense of real purpose. Lou's purpose was surprise and delight and joy for a developer. 
I, okay. Um, Evan's purpose, I think, was more, you know, more visceral, which is that there had been this loss of freedom of self-expression. We, we, something had been taken away from us in the way that the social media world had evolved. Um, and we couldn't um, communicate with our friends without fear of like the part of your brain that, that learns at about age six or seven, you could be rejected. And he wanted to give that back to people. And so that, that's like, wow. And, and, and it's just, that's the rapture, but it's also purpose that's activating it. The entrepreneur themselves, and by the way, you felt that in, in Mark's case, you know, it was, uh, I remember that pitch, not as Mark being sleepy, um, uh, of just, it, it, it's like shivering because you think, oh, wow, like this is such a powerful force of being able to bring people in on, on the online um, community or whatever um, at the time, the Facebook. And it, it's like one of those things and you pay at the pump for the first time. Of course, everyone laughs now because I use NFT and, and but but these moments like Uber, when you first got your first Uber, that you can't unsee that. And and then your mind starts to race and think, okay, what's possible here? Now, some products you like Kafka for Jay Krebs, we can't really relate to, to like, maybe if we're developers, but 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 the but the rapture's there, as is the sense of like, you know, purpose and and um the other thing I would say and is a common thread is you know, you, you can, you can get in your head very quickly in this business, right? You can start to tell yourself, well, this is the, this checks this box. It's the right space. It's that. I think it's always useful to say, what, is there some part of me that would quit what I'm doing right now to go work with this person? And if the answer is no, you probably shouldn't invest because you're going to be a terrible recruiter. <laughs> so doesn't mean that it won't be a successful company, but, but I think, and I think there's a lot of things I haven't done or I didn't do where, I, I would say I didn't feel that way. And I just sort of knew the business would be successful, but it didn't activate that. I mean, so I'm not going to be the best partner. And we have a business that's not a monopoly. You don't have to do everything. You have to do things that you uniquely are passionate about. And I think as an entrepreneur picking an investor, you should feel that um, electricity that this person would maybe even quit their job to work with me. I mean, you know, Sarah did that at Pinterest. <laughs> it's, it's That's the bar. And, and so in those meetings, I think that of those great entrepreneurs, again, it's probably hindsight bias. Perhaps a more interesting question is, did I ever not feel that way? And we invested and we look back and, and you know, <laughs> we have some interesting stories. There's WeWork, there's others. And, and yeah, I mean, that's why you have a partnership. You have different um, points of view. <laughs> How do you think about like what can go right versus what can go wrong, right? Inherently, there's this fool by randomness aspect that you don't want to get caught in the hindsight yeah. bias, to yeah. use your term. Uh, and so, but you also want to take the right level of risk that yeah. these, you know, whatever, if, if you get an Uber, uh, it can make up for a lot of other, other sins. When you're, when you're evaluating something, what time horizon are you actually thinking about? Like, are you yeah. actually thinking 10 years in the future, what it could be like if this actually manifests itself? Or are you thinking, Hey, in three years, can they actually get this product live? Do you use an infrastructure example or something? Yeah, it's cliche now to say this, that we overestimate what we can do in a year and underestimate what we can do in 10 years. But, you know, there is this thing you have to teach yourself because it's not instinctive and it's certainly something that we weren't wired up with statistical minds, you know, and so our perception tends to be of the present. And as an investor, one of the biggest skills this is the thing you have to develop intentfully is compounding how does compounding work and then there's probability distributions and how you think about that and 
when I when I come back to that question of, and it ultimately resolves the time horizon, right? Which is like, how anxious should you be? How patient should you be? Uh, in a sense, if it doesn't take seven to 10 years to manifest, then, you know, it's a problem because it would then invite a lot of other companies to come in early. It doesn't allow for that sort of natural expression. And, and many of the challenges we have, ironically, are with companies that have childhood actor syndrome, where boom, it happened. And there you are. And everyone sort of declared victory before they've really built a company. Came and easy early on. We had this at Docker. We had it at Twitter. And these are two, you know, tough experiences for me, because in both cases, I think you have companies that um, have the genotype of $100 billion economic value, maybe a trillion. That's their genotype. And their phenotype was a fraction of that. So you take that very personally and think, okay, well, what have I done? And in, in some cases, there are, there are bad behaviors that try to prematurely optimize. Jack revenue quickly. Um, at Docker, we did that. We got too much revenue of the wrong kind too quickly. Um, and at Twitter, we had other problems. But, but the point I'm making is that if you can have this hinge, and I, I, in a way, I actually think it's a little bit like the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. There needs to be this hinge between the long-term, you know, if we do the right things, it all takes care of itself. And then the short-term focus, maybe it's left brain, right brain. I don't yeah. need to pick any analogy you want. So, so what I get worried about when I hear in companies like we're long-term focused, so our numbers suck. <laughs> it's like, you don't get that luxury. <laughs> and you know, we just, you know, juiced our quarter. Isn't it great what we did? I'm like, nobody cares by the way. And I'm, I have a company right now I'm dealing with this. They had an extraordinary fiscal year. I'm like, congratulations. You just raised the bar, which is great, but it's terrifying because if you want to continue to grow at 75%. So of the balancing act, the hinge, the dance that you get involved with, is, which is, I think, is, um, you know, challenging to sustain for 10 years, is to bite off enough that you can chew while having in the background the most absurdly radical ambition. And, and you, doing those two things together is really hard. Yeah. And I found entrepreneurs that focus on the background ambition at the, exclu at the expense of the short term um, lose their teams. And, and, and oftentimes their investor support and the people that are hyper-focused on the short term lose the purpose. And so, so, so being able to have a dynamic, and I think you can set this up and as a systematic thing, like how do you interact with it? What questions do I ask the entrepreneurs I work with? I think is one way to keep true to that. You know, it's great. We did the fiscal planning, a lot of fiscal planning going on this year. When you look back in three years, what do you wish you would have done this year? Oh, that's a different frame, you know, and, and it gets you out of the, but you, you, you need to be balancing those two systems. And if you don't, then I think you end up with the common pathologies. Typically, if it's ambition focused, you can, um, or, or ambition centric, uh, at times you can lose focus. And when it's, yeah. Do you think in probabilities when making investments? Because ultimately there's only one outcome, right? And yeah. uh, I mean, theoretically, there's an infinite number of potential outcomes, but there's going to be one and you know that you can, you can build the model, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you've thought about this that, but ultimately there'll only be one. I, ha I have so much respect and admiration for Jeremy Levine. And I talked to him about an investment we're in together and he says, well, we, you know, we like you, like when we build the models, we wait the, here's the wild ass case. It's going to really work. Here's the wildest negative case. And then we look at each, we assign a probability. I'm like 10% chance it's 10 billion or that's an amazing way to think about it. Yeah. It blends out to the cost that we should pay for $400. For sure. You yeah. back solve. And I thought, 
it is amazing when I think about it, and it is completely inconsistent with the way I think about yeah. it. And so it's comforting in some ways. You can you can look at the inputs, and well, you know, yeah. I mean, it was only a ten percent chance it worked anyway. It's especially comforting when you have partners that are breathing down your neck and saying like, "How crazy is this?" And you're like, "Well, I understand, but here's the way of framing it." And I think it can be helpful. I don't think of the world that way. The way I, I come at it is actually very. Um, in, in, in a way, relational, which is we, we end up running into more problems, believe it or not, when founders lose their energy, their passion, their motivation. And if, 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 that, if I feel like that won't be satiated at the first wave of success, that it goes so deep that they're going to, you know, because that's when you get to the outer, you know, realms of probabilistic success there's a human side to it which is the person both didn't sell their company but pushed to expand the possibilities to get there and that's a human question so 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 my experience of it comes very much down to that centered human connection to say this is not you could say this cynically and say this is a function of uh, is the, is the insecurity of the founder something that can grow and become weaponized um I'd like to think of it more as the joy of the founder. And it's like, is it, is it insatiable? Does it, or, or does it like end when they can have their private jet, their five vacation homes and other things you do with the manifestation of wealth. And it's an interesting phenomenon. If you just think about it like psychographically, which is how does success shape and contour the individual? That's how I think about it. And so when I'm asking questions of an entrepreneur in these meetings, it's like, what is, what, what is, what can I imagine happens to them when it all washes over them. Take Toby as an example of Shopify. And I had the opportunity, regrettably, to do the Series A, the ser which now would have been called Pre-Seed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the first investment, the second, the third. And I, I you know, I didn't do it 100% like proof that I shouldn't even be in this chair in this business. And yet somehow I still... Like, I, I think you have other examples, but yeah. Maybe. Um, it's so humbling because I don't... Toby said something to me. It's like, we, we or us as a partnership because we thought you had a $200 billion market cap. It's like, yeah, but I built the $200 million market cap out of a $2 trillion opportunity. And I sort of think of it that way, which is like, I've built a little venture career out of something that was most, and you know, I'm lucky to be able to continue to do it. Not knowing at that time that a German, you know, expat in Canada entrepreneur building white label e-commerce, like what, what would success look like? And it's been our biggest risk out of out of the Silicon Valley has been the background conditions that people feel pattern matching. Yeah, what, what they like here a lot of people want to be bigger than Google, and maybe they want to be you know their purpose is has no limit, and that's a better way of saying. It. Yeah, where sometimes you go to you know I don't want to pick on uh, Topeka, Kansas, but it might be like hey you know yeah. like we're, that's a hundred million dollars yeah. that's great and it's like ah. Uh, um, so, so I think that question is, is less, the probabilities have to have a human manifestation story that more often than not, a great company gets an acquisition offer that's, that's irresistibly good. Evan Spiegel is an example, yeah. right? And, and what you're betting on, not betting, but you, what you, what you have to imagine is that in the radical success, which is why we do the job. I mean, honestly, it's sort of the, the, what we tilt towards that we need to believe that they're going to face that decision and the, the, the pull of, of the joy, the purpose, the things that have them going to work every day. 
will transcend the extrinsic rewards of all the money they could ever possibly imagine. And how do you know that? It's really tricky, but you, but you have to kind of have a point of view. Otherwise you have, there's so many examples of the companies that face that choice and they sold. I've heard you say that everyone gets worse at this job over time. Uh, I think that's probably true. If you look at the iconic people in the industry, all of them had some uh, either step back early, right? Or they had some unfortunate run (laughs) towards the tail end. Uh, We might be thinking of the same people. What, uh, why do you think that's the case? Why do you think this is the, that, that ultimately does, does the luck run out? Or does something change with the people, a lack of adapting? Yeah, I think it's a confluence of variables that, you know, the best you can do is be conscious of them because then you have a chance to transcend them. The first is ego. And, you know, the great next company is likely to be started by somebody that's totally unknown. And they don't know that you did these things 10 years ago or that you're this or that. Maybe they can find you online and have some but the probability that they're going to reach out to you is really low. So if you let your ego develop, then you start to assume great people will come find you, but they don't <laughs> typically. And I think this is the true in the supermajority of cases for us, we call them cold and it's hard if you think you're successful to do something that you were doing when you were 26, <laughs> the same cold call. Hey, yeah. I'm, you know, Logan and I, you know, you don't know who I am, but dot, dot, dot. So ego gives you a set of assumptions about what's going to come your way that are typically wrong. It has a double negative though, because you then get the opportunities of people who want to talk to famous people or well-known people. And, and, and so you, you have a flow of opportunities either from your historical investments that are historical. That, that can be great by the way, but it's on average, you know, you just, you build more of a, um, perturbation in the signals from that fresh question of what's the most interesting new thing right now. And so the, the trappings of success and ego is a facet of that, the aging of the network. Um, and I think there are other pathologies that people experience. And, and one of them is just the nature of wealth and how that tends to impact. It happens with entrepreneurs too, the hours in the day. So, so you look at the map, the 24 hours that you spend when you're at the beginning of your venture career versus the middle versus the end. And there's a pretty profound shift for many people. One of the things I'm struggling with, I always struggle with is, um, making enough time to go find that next great young entrepreneur. I'm on 12 boards, so I still do it. And I have to rely more on the instincts now that I have on the person than I do on due diligence or like spending meeting all 10 companies that are in this area. And so that puts me at risk. I'm more likely to commit quickly and decisively. Uh, and I'm committing for 10 years. And so, um, that these are all conf, uh, conflating factors, right? So one of the dimension, I think this is the, the one which, um, you have more control over than, you know, is mental, agility and freshness. And if you assume that there's a um, requirement of equality of curiosity, and you take that as a ground condition of being a benchmark partner, and I certainly do, then I have to be just as wildly curious as I was when I was 26 or 32 or, or, or 42. And I find that for some people that ages and it fatigues and they get a little bit more, well, let me tell you about my, and, and you know, you sit in a board meeting, you get to hear about 
I've been doing this for X number of years. And you're like, eh, like I want to be part of the team that destroys that generation. <laughs> so in a sense, I want to destroy my prior self through the, the creative process, the curious process of discovering what's violent and new and interesting. Again, a good, good example of that for a long time, AI was not a good place to invest. And in fact, a honeypot for a particularly bad kind of investor <laughs> you know, that didn't understand that economic value is not created in science it, it, per se. It's, it's created in the construct of a company and a product and, and value capture and value creation aren't the same thing. And if you wanted to make money in ML, you needed to build the vertical product. And so, you know, ML was sort of the icing on the cake. And if you just look at the icing, you wouldn't see the cake. That's shifting quickly. And, and the, the perturbations, the violence, and the pace of movement in ML and AI requires you to come at it fresh, as if you'd never been an investor. And say, okay, imagine this thing's happening where we're able to look at a whole ecosystem being lit up where historically you would have been killed if you went and invested in it. Now it may be the thing to be investing in. And so that's hard to let go of. And, and you know, for a while... I mean, I even go back to the beginning of my venture career, uh, consumer internet <laughs> was a good way to get out of the venture business if you'd been doing it in 99 and 2000, because most of those companies had failed, but, but then you wouldn't have done Facebook and yeah. So the, these aging aspects, if you're conscious of them, you can undermine them. I think it's not specific to venture and, um, there are some jobs though. And I think particularly you look at someone like Stan Druckenmiller where, 30 years of experience makes you a lot better <laughs> in, in venture. It, I think you have to lay out, it makes you a lot better in some ways. It makes you a lot worse in other ways. And if you're conscious of it, you have a chance to overcome that. I think it sort of goes back to the, what can go, if you're looking at an opportunity and thinking about all the ways people have died along that journey before <laughs> versus what could go right, yeah. right. Seeing all yeah. the way all the way through. Um, shifting gears a little bit. So the the benchmark partnership, so so you joined in 2006 and now yeah. you're the the oldest active investor of the uh, current fund. Is that That's right? That's fair to say, yeah. So how has, uh, obviously the compositions evolved. Uh, you're no longer all tall white men. Uh, mm -hmm. And the, but the, the ethos and all of those things seem to have stayed uh, consistent in terms of like what you guys want to be doing how how have you thought about building the firm to the to the point it is today and hiring in the right set of partners and making sure you all have the trust and the complementary skills and all of that stuff yeah I, th I think it um starts with this very basic question i ask my partners this question all the time where i mean all the time every few months we're founding a new firm who do we go hire? And, and that's a very different question than who do we want to add to benchmark? And so when you think of it from that primitive state of refounding, and I think benchmark has been founded a few times. Um, I think some companies say this to try and convince people that they're, you don't have to be a founder. You can come be a founder here. I actually think that's true here because the, the culture, while it carries that through line of attracting a certain kind of person who wants to be in a non-hierarchical structure, who wants a firm that amplifies their strengths and that buttresses their weaknesses. Like we, we speak to a certain kind of um, investor, but if you, if we start with that question and that's how I've thought about it with the people we brought on, which is if I were leaving benchmark to start the next benchmark, would I hire this person? Would I want to convince them to co-found with me because in a sense I'm not hiring them. 
and it's a weird conversation, which is why I think we can recruit some great people is that um, we're not really hiring them. We're asking them to, to found the next version of whatever this is that we have. It's not like a band, right? Where you say, um, you know, here he is, Neil Young with a new lineup. <laughs> and um, I think that's kind of fun because it is a anti-hierarchical, anti-legacy, anti, you know, um, permanence theory, which is that everything is ephemeral and every firm is ephemeral in the totality of existence. You know, we're just this little blip and getting us more in touch with that finitude of this benchmark, this benchmark will be gone in three to five years. There'll be a new group. Um, not, not entirely, but you know, certain people, myself included, you know, have a, um, we're finite. So, so I come to that question of like, who wants to refound? And then there's other layers on top of that, which is, um, what are we, what's not represented in the group that's part of, um, the firm we want to found. And, and, you know, it could be experience base. It could be personality type. It, it could be, it, but it's far less quantitative than it is qualitative. So, so I think one of the things we'd like to add to the firm going forward, um, Eric, having been a failed CEO, successful CEO, actually, cause he sold the company and I see he says failed, but he's, he's not exactly right. Um, I think having people who are around the table that have had more, um, recent and relevant direct experience building a startup will be great for the firm. And, and we're going to add that. And it's not that we can't do our job without it. And we're not defined by having experience, right? We're defined by the quality of people, the questions we ask, the, but it's a nice thing to have in the room. And, you know, Eric represents it. Sarah was at Pinterest for a long time. I think saw that, but, but we want to add more of that. So, so you, you, you tune it um, against that sort of core note of founder level quality, which means they have to share culturally the sort of sense of um you know they're serving entrepreneurs they're not they don't want their name on the website they don't you know seek opportunities for egoic self-expression because of course you can rationalize it well if, if you're doing that it's because you can draw attention to the companies yeah maybe you, you know um there's always some way to think about everything and in, in, in a light that's kind to yourself um but that's, that's, that's where we are. And I think, you know, we have an average age right now um, in the late 30s. Uh, it's an interesting thing to think about, you know. If we hadn't done the work of the founders all firing themselves, our average age would be, you know, mid-50s. And actually, it's not true. It'd be, it would be early 60s, if you, even with the current partners. And so the fact that we continue to rejuvenate and keep it in that essential core is, I think, really, to me, the model propagates that way because it's destroying itself constantly. You, you, you just referenced it, but you, you've also obviated the, the single biggest tension point at all venture capital firms, which is the firm website. It's perpetually, to, to do a firm website is to hate a firm website, is to need yeah. to update a firm website, is to, I hate to let people in on this secret, but if anyone asks you, if you work at a VC firm and you could ask to do the firm website, that is a, uh, that's a baton death march. And you guys have gotten, uh, gotten by, once upon a time you had a website, right? Yeah. Uh, and it, was it Matt Kohler that was forced to figure out what the new version of the, I mean, back in the day it was super interactive, right? And, uh, we don't, I don't, maybe I'll share this. It's probably not totally appropriate, but when we launched the new website, which is the no website, there was a dividing line at, at roughly 40 years old. And I'm overstating this, but it's not exactly wrong. Uh, of the people who called us up and said, your website's broken to the people who called us up and said, ah, 
it's just awesome you guys on our website because we now now we can go to the Twitter, the the LinkedIn and really um and so yeah, the logic of that is you know, I think there's a question of um we don't want to be non-transparent. So it's not meant to be some like we're hiding anything. Um but it's also um it burdens us in a way to get out there and have our website be the relational reality of benchmark. The entrepreneurs who say, if you're going to talk to a firm, you got to talk to benchmark. If you're going to raise money, you, you owe your, we would hope that they'd say you owe it to yourself to see if they're a fit. So it, it, in a sense, it sort of challenges us to be more um, out there and not rely on some you know, artifact that we created that tried to tell a story and, because our telling our story to me is not nearly as interesting as allowing that to happen in the natural effervescence of the way life goes down in, in the networks we work in. Um, you know, is it always successful? No, there's real trade-offs. I could imagine parts of the website and we've thought about it. Oh, maybe it's time to go back to be the first firm that relaunches a website. I, you know, um, that is, uh, it's a particularly unpleasant task in a firm that doesn't have any hierarchy because, you know, nobody wants that hot potato it's like why we don't have pr <laughs> yes yeah that uh i found office space and websites are the two things yeah. that if yeah. you if you get involved in those things at venture firms you're uh, yeah it's a it's a no win now um state of the market today you you you've gone through three different uh three different cycles right uh of downturns there was the 01 that we talked about when you were getting going then the uh 08 and now now this one um what what elements of it rhyme with some of these past experiences you've had and seen and wh what do you feel like we're in right now that's new and indifferent yeah the the part that rhymes if you want to call it that is the lived reality of valuation resets it's been it's been common across these cycle shifts where public markets are wired up to be very nimble and agile and resets. Now they, they, they still take six months time. Sometimes they take longer. Um, but broadly we've seen an eight catastrophic loss of value in the public tech stocks, 80% loss of value. That's not happened in the private sector. How does it happen in the private sector? Slowly. And, you know, because so much money got put into the balance sheets of the companies that, that could raise it in the last 18 months, many of them in, broadly, you know, in our portfolio and in the ecosystem, uh, they got to higher valuations are buying time. And, and there's maybe the market will recover by the time we need to get out there again. We'll see. But that reset takes more time in the private market and it can lead to these weird distortions, you know, uh, of the practical consideration of is my equity grant real? Um, and I think, you know, it stresses companies to sort of face the music in a sense to say, okay, let's know that we're not our valuation today. You never are. It's just a point in time. And, but, and, it, and it's what one person or some group of people said you were, right? Yeah. It's not a liquid market right. either. Yeah. And, I, and so, so you say, okay, isn't it nice that we're private and we don't have to deal with that problem? It's like, you, know, you have to deal with that problem. It's just, it's, it's not liquid. So I, I think it requires the great, the great companies will come back to that question of where are we in five to seven years if we manifest our strategy? How do we not let the the, the stress of the financial market wreck that opportunity set. And, and you're going to see a non-trivial number of companies. My, my instinct is that it's, this is what rhymes with maybe more like 2000 to 2003 is that, you know, some percent, 25, 50% of the companies are going to severely impair their five to seven year opportunity because of the 
access to capital problem. They'll be in denial about the need to cut. They'll be in denial about the, you know, hey, if I just do this, this is a common conversation. You know, we, we can get this valuation if we just do this. It's like, no, no, you don't understand. If you just do what your plans were, you're still going to have an 80% lower valuation. And whoa. And I'm struck particularly with younger people who say, we're going to grow into our multiple. <laughs> the multiple's gone. And so that part rhymes, which is the sense of denial. What doesn't rhyme, and I think this is the part which I still will say that um, I think one of the greatest traits of a good investor is the sense of um, bewilderment, of, of not just being agnostic, but being really um, careful about any certainties. And, and I'm quite bewildered by the nature of inflation this time around. The, the analogy that people have used, which makes sense to me, is it's more like cancer than the other flus that we've had. And in the venture business, I've seen two or three flus. One was very acute in 2008. You know, uh, it was a little more sustained in 2000 to 2004. Um, no, maybe it was 2001 to 2004. This is the cancer in the sense that it, it tends to compound towards negative and it gets worse and worse and worse until it gets fixed through chemotherapy, which is called high interest rates. We could imagine it's not out of the realm of possibility interest rates being above CPI to, to reset the economy. And that, that means what, eight, nine, 10% interest rates. Well, they were 20% in the 1980s. So if, if we get to that level, I think the question our companies don't really have a point of view about is when, when the cost of capital goes up three to five X, maybe 10 X, it's some subsegment of what we're doing no longer economically viable. And that's probably the case if you believe that the inflation remedy is 12, 15% interest rates. We're far away from that. And maybe it can course correct, maybe, but, but so this is where I think it's really different. And, and what does that mean practically day to day? Um, it doesn't really impact the Series A business, crazy as it is, because we still look for the same, I say Series A, I'm also putting a lasso around what people call seed today. And pre-seed too. Yeah, and, and pre-seed and pre-pre-seed. Um, uh, because so those companies are not going to be exposed to the stresses of the cost of capital at this scale until five to seven years down the road, at which point there'll be some new reality, among other reasons. I mean, and from the investor side, if it works... It, I mean, maybe the pricing changes the difference between a thousand X and a 500 X or something, right. but yeah, it'll the, be good. The terminal value will, will, yeah, it may be different, but the nature of the alchemy of venture is all intact. I'm in the process right now of working with a former entrepreneur and we're starting a company, he's starting it and I'm, um, and it feels like a great time to be starting a company. I would be careful. You're going to get term sheets right now. Oh no. It's, Just uh, got three X the markup, five X. Yeah. I mean, it's, um. Yeah, uh, if you, uh, yeah, <laughs> don't tell him because yeah. we're negotiating price. Oh <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, we'll that, let you get this sign before we uh, release indeed, the episode. Indeed. Um, yeah. So that that's the the hard part, and I think this is the human story that I don't know how you can sever your emotional attenuation to the suffering that real people go yeah. through during a period like this. I mean, it's sort of one thing to say face the music and you guys are all sinners in the hand of an angry God. It's another to say, oh man, that's going to suck for a lot of people. And I think what I've tried to invest in more in now with the founders I'm lucky enough to work with is 
building their emotional capabilities to deal with this because it is really vicious and hard. And, and there was a lot of stress during COVID and the CEO role, it's so lonely. And then the number of the issues that they had to not be silent on uh, the issues that our society has systemically. This is a different, more, more exhausting phenomenon. I'm more worried about uh, how that may take somebody who's the next Toby and, and, and cripple them in some fundamental ways from being their full potential. So being a resource for our founders to not just, you know, shame them into this is, you know, brutal times, but how do we help you get through this so that you're stronger through it? And, and that, that's really, I think, a unique role we can play because we're in the sense, like as a founder, we have an unconditional commitment to the business. I mean, in theory, until we sell the stock when it's public, but whereas employees are, you know, and, you know, regrettably in some cases that you make them conditional, but, but we can be there through this. And I think give them some sense of continuity and ballast. And, and that's when it's hardest for us to do our job, but we have to do it. That's on the, the startup side, which I, I like that you answered that very founder centric. What do you think about on the, the VC side? We've seen these cycles that corporate capital comes in and crossover yeah. funds come in and you know, whatever different pockets of big money come in. Um, how do you think that sort of flushes out? Yeah, I mean, I put jealousy and schadenfreude up there as probably the worst human vices. And and they tend to lead to cruelty, which is the worst human vice um, from my vantage point. So, yeah, you know, it is um, going to be very challenging for anybody that has high exposure for the last three years to get back to even. And it may take a very long time and what does that mean to those funds and their access to capital right now? There's still this weird reality distortion, right? Because the marked values don't reflect the, if everyone had to raise money tomorrow, what's the real value. Yeah. And if you told all of them, guess what? Your portfolio's down indexed to what the public market's down. I, I, I think that the LPs would be quite surprised. Not that they don't know that instinctively and they're all trying to do the right thing and stay true to the, but, but you know, if that, how does that impact the capital long-term? I think you have the same basic phenomenon, which is that um, private venture investing doesn't outperform the NASDAQ. And that that is a bitter pill that people have to swallow. Now, now there's there's the tautological statement that the top 10% of the funds outperform. Okay, <laughs> you know, and if you're 10% this time, you have a higher probability being top 10% next time. And uh, yeah. There's some really good studies on that. Of yeah. Persistence in the asset class. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I remember doing references on Jeremy Levine and people said, well, you know, we're just, we're not sure if we should commit to Bessemer because of the, he's just new. And it's like, you don't understand. This is the person you want to back. Yeah. You know, he's just at the beginning of a 20 year run and the people you're getting assurances from who've had a good 20 year run, they are the people you should take your money away from. And like, oh no, that's not how it works. I'm like, it's like science. You know, if you're more likely to get a grant, if you have, warmed over mediocrity in the bureaucracy of modern science than if you're the young 22 year old punk who has a radical idea. It is an interesting phenomenon that you raise money in the venture asset class over what you've done, but you make money off well, of what you done. will do. And those two things, I mean, they can be congruous, but often are very not right for all the reasons we talked there about are compounding earlier. effects of success in every business. They're also in this particular line of business compounding um, negative effects of success as you accumulate um, the the trappings of success. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a most LPs, I get it. 
they want to feel safe. They want to because they're being entrusted to make this decision, either for the family or for the family office or for philanthropy. And and if they say, well, no, this person seems great, and it's like that doesn't sound as smart as like look at this track record. But I didn't find a good time to work in Mark Flurry asking a customer to suck his dick. <laughs> so. I've heard you say Robert Sapolsky has been a mentor, friend, someone that you look up to uh, in your career. Obviously, a different. I mean, maybe for people listening that don't know, yeah. like what um, what about him do you admire, and how has that actually internalized itself in your job or yeah. in your life? Like, what elements yeah. of that have you internalized? Yeah, by me, by way of background. Um, Robert Sapolsky is a professor at Stanford of neuroscience. He teaches a few classes. Some of them you can see online. And I, I don't know that I would say he's a mentor other than a hugely influential thought um, impact on or cognitive impact on my life. And, and, and I think this in the category of someone like William James, who's in our midst, who's saying things that are going to be remembered in a hundred years and that... Um, you know, really can shape your understanding of reality. And it's not a TED Talk kind of thing. It, it's a volume of work that um, if you get to know the human being, you, you, you realize he makes you more human. He gets you more in touch with the fragility of what it is to be conscious and to be, um, you know, controlled by our neurology and, you know, the effects of obviously the endocrinology and the, the, the mechanics of our um, cognitive abilities are something he has deep understanding of, but, but, you know, Robert's more recently really affected my, uh, internalization of the absence of free will. And he's about to have a book uh, called determined the life and science of, um, something, I think it's life and science without free will. We can link in the show notes. I'm yeah, sure there's a pre-order. It, it is. And, and it's a controversial position, which is that free will is a precondition for the modern, um, judicial system how do you punish someone if they didn't have free will and if you assume that they didn't have free will then then you get out of this notion of um retributive justice and you move to just you know restorative justice but why is that relevant in the venture business in my life and all this you know because you know roberts um has this humanizing effect to recognize a bunch of things that that relate to station in life um it's just luck so I'd say these, one of these things is when you give up the notion of free will, you give up the notion that you were, you were successful because you, you didn't, you don't really exist. <laughs> if you sort of, it's not just meant to be some, uh, you know, Zen comment, but um, you start to think about and take an ethical, I think, relationship to systematic phenomenon that, that preconditions exist that you can, in fact, that will show up in someone's character, someone's, um, I hope philanthropically I'm able to have an impact on the world um, that's outsized relative to my my work with my venture portfolio. The thread that's pulling me there, and this is where I think anyone when that's connects to philanthropy, you can give money. That's one thing, but you should you should feel the same total loss of self and joy and pursuit that you feel in the things you've done that are, you're most successful at, if in a philanthropic effort, because then you might actually do something great. So his, his assault on the notion that we have a justice system that is attenuated to reality, but in fact, it's just really, you know, 15th century barbarism that we're brutalizing people. You take this, you know, solitary confinement as a punishment for people in prison. And we know that tachykinin, which is a 
um, well, there's three or four versions of it in the brain, right, that um, get released in social isolation that activate aggression in the worst of human behavior. And we're, we're amplifying that in the people who are the most vulnerable. So I think, Robert, my guess is that if you had this podcast in 10 years, that his influence in my life will have set a trajectory. And I urge people to read his work. You know, his last book, Behave, the best book I've read of his was, um, uh, you know, the um, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers and How We Kill Ourselves with Our Stress Responses. And um, and this is a living giant amongst our time. So, you know, listen to his podcast. And I think people get swept off their feet when they hear a person like this talk. So That's great. Yeah. That's a very uh, heightened uh, state for us to end. I, I, I had two final questions. One was a, a portfolio company telling someone to, a customer to suck their dick in that one. And I, uh, there were <laughs> two choices. We'll have to leave that for the next time we do this. That was a much more elevated way for us to end yeah. this discussion. So that is true. I invested after I knew he did that. Um, it not, worked out for you. Yeah, it, um, it did. It was the start of a chain of investments. Yeah. Uh, Your whole open source thesis or whatever yeah. investments all trace back to an SMD, uh, M, uh CEO saying yeah, that. So. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, thanks Peter. Thank you. And that'll do it for the 40th episode of Cartoon Avatars. Thanks to Rashad Asir. Thanks to Justin and Andrew on the production team. Thanks to Peter Fenton from Benchmark for coming on. Really fun episode. And uh, look forward to seeing everyone next week on the 41st episode of Cartoon Avatars. Have a good weekend, everyone. <laughs>